0: for bringing us here. We thank you for the opportunity we have to meet, Lord. We thank you that, God, it is you by your divine, sovereign appointment, Lord, that you have brought us here. And we're not here by accident, but it's because of you, Lord. And God, even more than that, we want to be here. Lord, we love you so much. We want to seek you. We want to worship you, Lord. And now as we open your word, God, we want to hear from you. So, Lord, I pray that you would give us ears to hear what the Spirit is saying. A mind, Lord, to understand your principles and truths that we are discovering today. And, Lord, I pray you give us a heart to receive all of that you are asking us, Lord, to do. Help us to live for you more, God. Help us to love you more. And so, anoint this study with your Holy Spirit, and we ask this in Jesus' name. And everyone said, Amen. Amen. Well, once I read about Billy Graham, who once told of this incident that happened while he was sitting on the plane. And this is what he wrote. Some years ago, I was on a plane, and sitting across from me was the mayor of Charlotte, John Belk. There was a man sitting near us who was obviously intoxicated. He was acting boisterous and rude, bothering people around him, harassing the flight attendants, and even trying to pinch women who made their way down the aisle. While trying to distract him and perhaps calm him down, John Belt, that, that mayor, tapped him on the shoulder, pointed in my direction, and said, Do you know who's sitting right there? Who? the man answered, That's Billy Graham, said Belt. Well, at that, the man jumped from his seat, came over to me with his hand extended, and said enthusiastically, put it there, reverend. Your preaching has done me so good. Well, all of us probably know someone who claims to know Jesus, who's professed Jesus in their life, but their life doesn't match what they say. They say that they are Christians. They say that they even serve the Lord, and maybe they do. But, and the reality is they don't really know Jesus. It's like what Jesus said. Remember in Matthew chapter 7, verse 21 through 23, Jesus said, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Jesus said, Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have, have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, and done many wonders in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Well, it's a serious matter, isn't it? It's a serious matter for a person maybe to be part of a church for years and even call Jesus their Lord and claim to even serve the Lord. Yet they never have truly believed. They have never truly made a commitment to God. And thus, they have never truly been saved. And you can tell, you can tell by the way they continue to practice, like Jesus said, practice sin. You can tell there's something not right in what they do with Jesus. Well, as we, re- as we return to the book of Hebrews, the writer gets very serious with those who are in need of spiritual growth. And he gets serious with those who profess to know Jesus, but really don't. All in all, the writer gets serious about taking Jesus seriously. And that's the title of our study today. That's the title of our message Taking Jesus Seriously. We're going to be studying Hebrews chapter 6 from verse 1 through 8 this morning. 1 through 8. I've broken up our passage into three parts, and this is our outline. Number one, be mature. Number two, be warned. And number three, be fruitful. So, taking Jesus seriously, Hebrews chapter 6, verse 1 through 8 today. And before we get into this, I want you to know, you got to put your, like, thinking caps on today. Because we're coming into a very difficult uh, part of Scripture. And the interpretation is a little hard. But if if you can follow me, hopefully it will make sense by the end of the day. So, anyway, number one, let's begin in our outline. Be mature. Be mature. Hebrews chapter 6 verse 1. Take a look here. It reads, therefore leaving the discussion of the elementary principles of Christ, let us go on to perfection. Now we're going to pause right there. We're just going to take a look at this. Now we begin here with the word therefore, right? And as I always say, whenever you see the word therefore, you got to ask why it's therefore. Well, therefore is a conjunction. It's a word that connects us to the previous part. And this therefore connects us to the last part of chapter five, where the writer addressed believers who were stuck in a stubborn immaturity. And if you were with us last week, that was the title of our message. That's what we covered. These uh, had been In Christ for some time, but they never grew and they were still, you remember, spiritual babies. Needing milk and not able to handle the solid meat of the Word of God. And that's what we saw at the end of chapter 5. So, therefore, the writer goes on here in chapter 6. You know, since you are spiritual babies, you know, it's now the time to be leaving, he writes here. Which means, actually, to put away which means to to put behind you. It means, hey, let's move on now. Let's put this behind you. Let's move on now. And then he says, leaving the discussion of the elementary principles, of the basic teachings of Christ, or I like uh, to use the word Messiah here, because he's bringing us into this Old Testament thought. I believe he refers now, when he talks about the elementary principles, is he refers to the basic Old Testament teaching and views of the Messiah that the readers, these Jews, are well versed in. So he says, look, it's time to like, move on from those things. It's time to move on from, hey, what you grew up and what, you, what you've learned you know. in that way, you Jews there. And it's time now, let us, it says in verse 1, let us go on to perfection. And actually the word perfection there is better translated maturity, maturity. So the idea here is this. It was now time to move on from the Old Testament teaching to the New Testament truth. That's the idea. We're going we're gonna to move now. We want you to grow now in truth. And remember, he's writing to the Jews here, the ri- writer here. And so it's ta- now time to move on now from Old Testament teaching to the New Testament truth. John MacArthur wrote, the maturity about which this passage is t- t- talking is that of leaving the ABCs of the Old Covenant to come to the full revelation and blessings of the new. And so that is the way, that is how the writer's pulling him into for these Jews to be mature. Thus the heading in our outline, to be mature. And remember again, I remind you that this book is written to the Jews, thus the title, Hebrews, right? And we've also learned how many of, how uh, how many of the, uh, how much of these believing Jews, they were under a lot of pressure, right? They're going through some persecution from their family, from fellow Jews, and, and they're like, you can't, you can't leave your traditions. You, you can't leave the Jewish rituals and everything we're doing. But as you know, as we've been studying, Jesus has brought a new covenant of forgiveness Uh, Of dying on the cross, a sacrifice once for all, for all our sins. And it's that faith in Christ of the high priest that we saw earlier, right before all this. Of his work on the cross, dying for our sins and making atonement for us. So it was important to cut ties, so to speak, from the Old Testament sacrifices and rituals. And not mixing in the old ways with what Christ has done. So the writer's like, we got to move on now. Be, ma- be mature now. Move on into maturity. Move on in faith, putting your trust in Jesus and Jesus alone. Okay, so now we got that. Now we could go on in, in verse 1. Now he says, not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God. Verse 2, of the doctrine of baptisms, of laying on hands. And then the last part of verse 2, of resurrection of the dead and of eternal judgment. Now the writer lists like six things in, these, in three groups of what they should be clear on. And that is not laying again this past foundation, this, this past foundation. knowledge and teaching of what they grew up in so the writer's like hey we shouldn't have to keep going over these basic things and what is that lane again go keep going over these past things that you have learned that that you grew up with it's part of your foundation of who you are and what you were trained in it's it's those old testament concepts which actually we know point to the new testament truths about salvation in jesus christ so as it goes into here, the writer's like, don't stay stuck in the Old Testament, but move on to these teachings and let it lead you to Jesus Christ. So what we see here, we see in these verses that we just read from the end of verse one to verse, into verse two, we see, we see these things that, that they need to grow out of. And what are these things? Well, we have three, three things. There's uh, six things in three groups, so I have three, three uh, labels I put on it. And number one is the internal, number two is the external, and number three is the eternal. So the first group, take a look here, this concerns the internal, the internal. Verse 1 again, at the end, it says, of repentance from dead works. Now repentance, we know. It means a change of direction. It means doing a 180. When we repent of our sins, we're turning around from that path that we were going, and we're going on that path toward God. We know that. It's a change of direction. And that repentance is from dead works. Works And what is that? Well, that's sinful deeds. It's, it's sin, basically. We know the result of sin is death, right? Romans. So these works are a, a dead end, so to speak. So these are dead works. But this repentance from sin, our dead works, that has to be coupled with faith toward God. And we understand that, right? Just to turn from evil and do nothing, it doesn't help it doesn't do anything unless you turn from evil and turn to God. And not just God we're talking about here. The writer is bringing them into the New Testament truth about putting your faith in Jesus Christ. So you repent from your sin and you turn in faith to what Jesus has done in the provision for our sins. So, Here's, the idea here is this, repentance is needed, but it must be coupled with faith in Jesus for salvation. So the repentance of the Old Testament, that's great, but we need to, that should lead us into the faith of the New Testament. Now this is what Peter said when he was preaching in Acts Chapter 2 to the Jews there in Jerusalem. He said in Acts 2.38, Repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission or the forgiveness of sins and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So, understand, repentance is needed, but the writer is saying, Look, you've got got to be coupled with faith in Jesus for salvation. So that's the internal things. Well, that's the first group. Well, now he goes to the second group, and it turns, number two, the external, the external. Look at verse 2 now, the first part. It says, of the doctrine of baptisms, of laying on hands. All right, now this first thing, the of the doctrine of baptism, the, the original word there in the Greek is baptismos, and it really means washings, which is probably a better translation here. Uh, And it speaks of the Jewish ritual of washing. It's different than baptizo, which always speaks about water baptism that we do as believers. But it relates to it. Now, Every Jewish home had a basin by its entrance for ritual cleansing. You go and ritually, you know, wash your hands and you're clean. Uh, the priests, you know, they would wash too before they went in and started to do ministry. They, they had their own ceremonial cleansing. But the idea is there's no need to do that anymore, right? Christ's blood washes us clean and gives us new heart even Ezekiel 36 25 through 26 and if there is any external washing for the believer to do it is water baptism right which symbolizes how the believer died with Christ how they rose again with Christ into a new life and now we're cleansed and washed of our sin so he says we we've laid you guys know this foundation you grew up in this way but hey the, this kind of stuff, we've got to move on now, move into, hey, what, what things are really about. And then the writer adds, of laying on of hands. Now, if you're a, a Jewish person and you're reading this, and you, you, you know, right away what you think of is, oh yeah, in our rituals, in the, from the Old Testament, you lay your hands on an animal that's going to be sacrificed, and you symbolically transfer your sin onto that animal before you offer it. For atonement, so that's how the sacrifice dies for your sin. Well, that's not the way, right? In the new in the New Testament, our sins have been laid upon Christ, who died for our atonement, and so there's no need for them to do that anymore. There's no need that they lay their hands on the animal. No, it's done. It's done away. It's done in Christ. So the ritual washings and laying on of hands of the Old Testament are now fulfilled in Jesus. In the New Testament. So, the symbol transference of the Old Testament, it's done away. It's, it's, it's done away in the New Testament. We know uh, how believers are identified with Jesus. In Romans chapter 6, 3-4, to 4, Paul wrote, or do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ, Jesus were baptized into his death. And we, were, we identify with Christ. We died with him. Therefore we are buried with him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. Alright, so the first group concerns the internal he talks about the second group concerns the, concerns the external and now the third group that we see here at the end of verse two concerns the eternal the eternal so it says here at the end of verse two of resurrection of the dead and of eternal judgment so this first one of the resurrection of the dead now understand there is there is some stuff in the old testament but there's Hardly anything, very little about bodily resurrection going into heaven. Yeah. But the New Testament is very clear that believers will rise literally be resurrected, we'll have new bodies given, and we'll live in heaven with our new glorified bodies. We understand that, right? But the Old Testament, not too much. So the writer's like, hey, we got to kind of leave that Old Testament kind of thing and go on to the New Testament. What Jesus has brought, what has been taught, and what is uh, teaching with the apostles now. And then group with that is the eternal judgment. Now the Old Testament talk, clearly about judgment of unbelievers but the new testament even gives more detail about what that's about like the white throne judgment or remember jesus talked about the separation of the sheep and goats yeah that there is going to be a separation there of the saved and unsaved the new testament even talks about that jesus christ is actually the judge that's going to be uh, where unbelievers will come before and every knee will bow down, you know, and declare and, and call him Lord. So, what was fuzzy in the Old Testament about the hereafter, so to speak, is crystal clear in the New Testament with salvation in Jesus. Remember when Jesus declared in John eleven twenty five 25-26, he said, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? So the New Testament is a lot more clear on resurrection of our bodies and judgment and all of that. So these, the internal, the external, the eternal, these Old Testament con concepts are to be laid down laying down again put leaving behind you know move on from that to the new testament truth see what he's kind of putting forth here is spiritual immaturity really for these jews is to stay stuck in the old testament rituals and traditions but maturity spiritual maturity means to move on now to the new testament truth of jesus then the writer adds this in verse 3, and this we will do if God permits. In other words, as God wills, you know, in other words, you know, as he does his work in us. So he's submitting to the sovereignty of God. And basically he's saying, you know, what, as God wills, with this help, we're going to, we will grow. We will be mature. See, think about this. The writer desired so much. I mean, he's pleading with them. He's writing this book to the Jews, to these believing Jews to press forward, right? But right in verse 3, he submits to God and he knows that it can only happen through God's work. Ultimately, they must look to God for He is the one who will help them grow. You know what I was thinking about? I remember back in 1 Corinthians chapter 3 when we studied that? Verse 6, Paul wrote, how he planted the seed and Apollos watered, but God gave the increase. You remember that, that thought? I mean, that's the idea. Paul's saying, hey, you know, people are, are, are saved because, you know, I planted a seed, Apollos came and talked more, watered with the word even more, and then God grew them. God saved the people. God grew the church here in Corinth. It's that idea of the farmer. The farmer may plant the seed and he may water it. Someone else may water it. But how does the plant grow? Does the farmer go, grow? No. He doesn't do that, right? He doesn't like, come on, come on, massaging the little sprouts and stuff. Grow. No. He doesn't do that. What? God does that. God does the growing. And so that's the idea here. The writer is submitting to the sovereignty of God and saying, you know what, guys? In the end, God's the one who's going to make you grow. But you got to receive, and God will have you grow. But you got to move on here. And that's the way it all works. But I believe this, and I want to put this kind of in a, what's going on in, in his heart, in the writing, uh, and in the people. I believe the problem, problem with these Jewish believers is they were not fully inputting the New Testament truths into their lives like they should. That's the writers writing this whole book. You know, think about that. In all that we've studied so far from the first chapter, we see that. The writers really trying to put forth Jesus there and get these guys out of their Jewish traditions and rituals and ceremonies to go and see what Jesus has done. I believe what was happening is these guys are adding Jesus to their Judaism. Yeah? They're just, oh, yeah, we're Jews, and we go to the temple, we have our customs and our ceremonies and our rituals, and Jesus, oh, okay, yeah, yeah, and they they're moved with that. They gave their life to Jesus, and now it's like, whoa, what do we do with our, this old stuff we did and the new stuff you're talking about? Well, you know what, I know we, this is the way we grew up, so they just add Jesus to this Judaism rather than making Jesus everything everything the truths of jesus the doctrines in the new testament of who we are as new creation as believers the holy spirit moving in our lives all of that it's based on making jesus everything god will grow them but they cannot without the water of the word the new testament truth about jesus which brings us to the point here in this section the writer's really pushing this. Move on from just adding Jesus to the Jewish rituals for everything in salvation is centered on Jesus. Move on from those old, the, the internal, external, you know, eternal thing. You know, of the Old Testament. Move on to the New Testament things of the internal, external, uh, eternal things. Move on from just adding Jesus to the Jewish rituals for everything in this salvation is centered on Jesus. Everything's about Jesus. A few years back, uh, you know, Fave and Mona from All Things Possible Ministry, um, they were staying at our house and they cooked us dinner. And uh, Mona had brought her recipe for rainbow drive in You chicken. And she mixed up the ingredients, let it marinate, it and cooked it. And I was like, oh, this is so good. And I just couldn't eat enough of it, yeah? Unfortunately, there were leftovers for the next day. <laughs> Well, it was so ono, it was, you know, she, Kristen got the recipe from her, and, and we have it at our house, and now we can make our own Rainbow Drive-In you chicken. And actually, uh, my wife Kristen was like, hey, what do you want to eat tonight? I was thinking, Rainbow Drive-In you chicken. So we had that last night. It was so ono. Oh, I still want to eat some more. Anyway, what, do you, what would you say is the main ingredient in the shoyu chicken? Is it the ginger? Is it the sugar? Is it the shoyu? Well, for sure, because it says shoyu, right, in, in the name of it. Maybe it's the mirin, right? Maybe it's that. What would you say is the main ingredient? You know what I would say? Chicken, right? Chicken, right? Without the chicken, what is it? Just the shoyu sauce, right? Oh, yeah, that's really tasty, right? It's the chicken, well, that's really the point here. Without the main person of salvation, without you know, the, the one who made the atonement, without the one who came to this earth and taught these truths, without the one who sitting on the throne rose again from the dead, without Jesus, it's nothing. And this is what the writer said, hey, move on from focusing on these rituals and the sacrifices and the temple and the cleansings and those things that you, you kind of focus on in the Old Testament. Move on to these truths that, bring you, that every, bring you to the point where everything is about Jesus. Let me ask you, do you maybe do this? Do you just add Jesus to your life? You just kind of add him there. Oh, he's like another ingredient, you know, in your philosophy of life. Yeah. Or is Jesus the main person in your life? Think of it this way. Do we just add Jesus to him? Like Jesus to our life when, well, when it's convenient. Well, when it fits my schedule, okay, I'll, I'll, I'll add Jesus there. Or is he your schedule? Yeah. Is everything planned around Jesus. I was thinking about this. Perhaps you come from other beliefs. Maybe you grew up. Maybe your family was Buddhist. You know, my, my, my parents were following that, you know, years ago. They're saved now, praise the Lord. Yeah. Maybe you, you, you grew up in some other religion or other way or other philosophies and stuff. And, yeah, you come to Christ. And, and, and then now, well, what do I do? Uh, so, I, well, I'll just add Jesus to what? I believe. Maybe you're mixing Jesus and putting, all, uh, putting it all together, making your own recipe and philosophy of life. It doesn't work. And that's what some of these Jews were doing. That's what some of the readers of this book, and they are in danger of doing. But the writers telling them move on from just adding Jesus to those Jewish rituals. For everything in salvation, you know what? It's centered on Jesus. And that speaks to me today, right? It should speak to us today. Jesus has to be the center of your life. All right, let's go to number two now. Be warned, be warned. Now, taking Jesus seriously, we see number one, be mature. Now, number two in our outline is be warned. Hebrews chapter 6, verse 4. For it is impossible for those who were once enlightened and have tasted the heavenly gift and have become partakers of the Holy Spirit and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come if, verse 6, they fall away to renew them again to repentance since they crucify again for themselves the Son of God and put Him to an open shame. You got it now? Okay, let's go home. Let's pray. All right, we come to one of the most difficult passages to interpret in the New Testament, and it's it's really hard. And people have debated over this, and many commentators have whole different views on this. And and I, what I've really found, depending on on the background of their theological background, like what camp they may come from, depends on how they see these verses. And, and, and the difficulty I'll point out right now comes from the phrases like it is impossible for those, right? It, in verse 6, if they fall away, yeah, to renew again, to repentance. so this confusion, it seems like the writer says, hey, if a person falls away from the Lord, it's impossible for them to come back to God in repentance. Is that what it's saying? Oh my gosh, I'm lost then. Well, before I share with you what I, I think, let me give you just a couple of different views ju- that I just don't see uh, really fits in a proper in- imper- interpretation. And, and throughout this section, or really throughout this message today, this whole, whole uh, verses 1 through 8 is difficult to interpret. But throughout this, let me just put in your mind, study this on your own. Yeah? Figure it out. I mean, I, I won't be offended if you say, right, well, I think this. Well, Praise the Lord. I'm glad you studied it, you know. Let's talk about it. Yeah, oh yeah, you know. We can agree to disagree. That's okay. But study it on your own. Be a good Berean, right? Acts 17 and 11, the Bereans. You remember those guys? When Paul came into town, preached to them. They took what Paul went, searched the scriptures to see if what Paul was saying was true. Be a good Berean about this. All right. So what's going on here? What, well, here's what, there's some different views. Some say, first of all, this is a hypothetical case. Now there's the writer saying, well, you know, if it was even possible to fall away, there would really be no way back. So it, it kind of presents this kind of backwards way of saying, yeah, you, you, you know, th- there would be no, no way that would happen. But to me, that doesn't make sense to me, and it's too hard for my head to understand that. A second view is this. Some say this is speaking not about salvation, but the rewards of the believers, that it's impossible to get your reward back once you lose them to disobedience. And we saw that. We talked about that both in 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, of the rewards of the believer, the beam of seed of Christ, all of that. But that this... This view also doesn't make sense to me because there's a greater loss here going on. It's not like rewards of a believer. I mean, in verse 6 to say to crucify Jesus again, I think it's speaking of something more serious. Now, the third view is really one of the most popular views. There's two popular views, and the second one is is really what I feel, and we're going to be covering that Uh, as we get into the verse. But let me say the third view is one of the two most popular views. And this speaks that, you know what this is saying? The believer has lost their salvation. Which brings up this question, can a believer lose their salvation? Can they? Well, let me first say this. If you come from that kind of theological camp, you will read this and you'll see this as a proof text that this, this says, see, it's possible to lose your salvation. Now, those people who believe you can lose your salvation, they also say that, well, but you can get it back. You can come to the Lord and, and repent. You can get it back. But if you really read this, this is saying you cannot come back and be saved again. This is for it is impossible for those who fall away to be renewed again. Well, for those who believe you can lose your salvation, really, for me, my mind goes to. I, I I always ask, well, what? Is, where's that line then? Yeah, where's that point where you actually lose your salvation? What is that sin? Is it a particular sin, or is it a particular number of sins? You know, well, when you reach a hundred, that's it. You're out. You know, uh, where is that point where you lose your salvation? Well. You know what? In the Bible, there's really no answer to that, to that, those kinds of questions from Scripture. If you hold to this theology, I don't think you could really find a specific uh, verse about that. But let me tell you, the Bible is very clear about the security of a believer's salvation. So can a believer lose their salvation? The answer is no. No. They cannot They cannot lose their salvation. And I'll say that again. A believer has security in their salvation. They cannot lose their salvation. That's what I see in the New Testament. So is this talking about someone losing their salvation? No. Understand this. We do have a free will to make a choice, right? But once we choose Jesus and truly believe and accept him and we are saved, then God, God's the one who comes in When we say, Lord, I need you, save me. He comes and he does the work to save us, right? We cannot save ourselves. It's not any work, Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, right? It's not any lack of it that will save us. Jesus took care of all of that on the cross. And when God does the work, when God does a work, I should say, he does it what? With excellence, yeah? It'll never be half undone. He'll never like, well, I'm I'm not going to do that anymore, right? And leave it and abandon it. No, that's not God. Listen closely. A believer cannot lose their salvation. The Bible is very clear about the security of a believer's salvation. Now, there's many scriptures in the Bible, and, and just for a moment, I want to put it in front of your faces. So turn to 1 Peter. I just want to hit a couple scriptures here. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 4 through 5. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 4 through 5. Turn over a couple books to the right. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 4. It says, To an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled and does not fade away from, reserved in heaven for you, talking about our salvation, being with the Lord, who are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. So our salvation, we're kept by the power of God, and it's through faith, faith in who? Jesus Christ. So Christians are kept by what? The power of God you think God will be like, okay, I'm trying to hold on to your salvation. Oh, no, I can't, I can't. And let you go and you lose your salvation? No, it is His power, His work that has saved us. Now, turn uh, way over to the left to Philippians chapter 1, verse 6. Philippians chapter 1, verse 6. Philippians 1, 6. It says here, Being confident of this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. Some of you... This is your life first. Some of you have this highlighted. What did God do? Well, He began a good work. And what's that good work? Well, it's the work of salvation. He saved you. He's sanctifying you. He's growing you. And then one day He's going to glorify you and bring you into heaven. And salvation will be complete. will be in eternity with God, right? That's that work of salvation. And what, what will God do? He, look, it says He will. What does that mean? He won't? No. It says He will, right? And if God says He's going to do something, He's going to do it. So He will what? Complete it. He will finish what He started, and if, if God says He will, God will do it. Amen? So you understand, God does that work of salvation. And you understand, how could we lose our salvation if God is the one who does it? Okay, turn to John chapter 10, last verse verses john chapter 10 verse 27 through 29 john 10 27 through 29 now this is jesus your lord and your savior he said these very words yeah it wasn't peter it wasn't paul but here in john john records what the lord jesus said he said in verse 27 john 10 27 my sheep hear my voice and i know them and they follow me And, verse 28, I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish, neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. Verse 29, my Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. So you see what Jesus, he's talking about my sheep, his people, the ones he saved, his sheep. He's giving the sheep illustration. And he's saying, look, my sheep, they know me. They're going to follow me. I give them eternal life. What does that mean? They're saved. They're never going to perish, right? They're going to go to heaven, right? And then he says, no one's going to snatch them out of my hand. It's this picture of the shepherd protecting his sheep, right? And so the devil, nobody, not even ourselves can come and, and pull us out of his hand steal us away. Jesus saying, no one's going to do that. And then on top of it, that, he says, you know my father, he's, he's even greater. No one's able to snatch him out of my father's hand even. This is called the double grip of salvation. Yeah. Jesus in the father's hand, holding on to you and your salvation. You're protected. You're secured in both Jesus and the father's so do you see now how secure our salvation is we could do a whole week of studies on the security of our salvation and we could also talk about the free will and choice of, of man but that's for another time but you see our salvation is secure think of it this way my salvation is content, my salvation uh is is if my salvation if is contingent upon me holding on to jesus then I will surely fail. Yeah, I will surely fail. But if my salvation is upheld by the one who saved me in the first place, then I will never fall away. I like something my friend, uh, Pastor Ron hit at Calvary Houston said. He said, you're not the one holding on to Jesus. Jesus is the one holding on to you. Isn't that great? You're not the one holding on to Jesus. Jesus is the one holding on to you. Okay, now that you understand this, go back to Hebrews chapter 6. And now let's look at what verses 4 through 6 is saying. What's it talking about? Well, it has to be talking about these people who have some, come so close to Jesus, but stopped short of salvation. They may be in the church, but Christ is not in them. They have come as far as they could to Jesus without giving their life completely to Him. So take a look here at our verses. Hebrews chapter 6 verse 4 says, For it is impossible for those who were once enlightened and have tasted the heavenly gift and have become partakers of the Holy Spirit. So let's take this first part. For it is impossible... How could these guys go back? And we'll come back to that. For those, those well, these are people who come close yeah, to salvation but aren't saved, who were once enlightened. What does that mean, once enlightened? Well, it means to be informed, to be mentally aware. These heard and were impacted by what was told them. But hearing God's word and heeding it are two different things. These experience, right? Their minds being enlightened by the truth of Jesus, but they did not allow it to affect their heart. I don't know if you remember back in Matthew chapter seven twenty-eight. Uh, In twenty nine, it says that the people who heard Jesus, they were totally astonished. They've never heard anyone teach like that. They were drawn into Jesus, and and they they said, "No one teaches like that." They loved it. They they experienced. Imagine Jesus, God speaking. They heard His word literally. But did they become followers? Not all of them. Later on, on the last day of His life, most of those same people who heard Him, you know what they're chanting. Crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. Same people. So you see, someone can be theologically full in their mind, but be so empty at the same time. Think about Satan, right? He probably knows scripture more than anyone here. But does it change him? No, no. So you can be enlightened and still not be saved. And the writer adds this now. They have tasted the heavenly gift. In other words, they only sampled what the gift, the salvation, could do. Perhaps I don't know. Maybe they sat in church, felt the joy of of those who were saved and being freed from their sin, and they cried with others who cried in repentance and were forgiven. But they themselves did not give their life to Jesus. They were all, also here only partakers of the Holy Spirit. Partakers here mean more like association. Like these never were fully filled or possessed or filled with the Spirit. They, they only experienced the effects of the Spirit being associated with being around those believers with, with the Spirit within them. Perhaps, I don't know, maybe they felt their emotions in the room when the Spirit moved in worship. They caught up. They got caught up in the clapping and singing to God, but they never entered in and gave their heart to the Lord. See, these guys experience all you would say, I would say this, a sip from the cup, but never drank it all. They just tasted. And then verse 5, he says, and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come. Here, these guys only tasted, they didn't eat, they didn't devour it, You know, the good word of God, the word, the the word, the word word here, the original language and word is rima, which actually isn't like logos, like the whole word. But rima refers to a statement or just a word. In other words, they only tasted one part of the word, a tiny piece of word, and they didn't eat the whole pie so to speak. Perhaps these guys take from the Bible only that which supports their agenda or what they want or what makes them feel good, but not the truth of salvation. You know, they they like the devotional books or the little sayings or, 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 you know, little things, and they don't look at the whole truth and they're not reading the Bible. You know, the Word is the truth of God and even a small part is Powerful, And that's what they felt. That's what they, they were drawn to, just even a little part. And these also tasted, it says here, and the powers of the age to come. Now, the age to come is the kingdom of God. So this speaks of the power of God and which really is talking about the power that's manifested in miracles. So these guys experienced the word and incredible miracles of God, yet they did not fully surrender to god remember in john 11 jesus raises lazarus from the dead i mean could you imagine that this is a miracle of miracles yeah here's jesus here's here's we know he's the son of god but people are like who's this guy a prophet oh i like how he speaks but he he heals people but what raise someone who is dead right to life This is a miracles of miracles. I mean, clearly showing the power of God in Jesus. Now, you would think after that miracle, everyone in all of Judea would just get saved at that moment, like that instantly, right? You would think that. Many did. Verse 45 in chapter 11 in John says, Many who who were with Mary believed in Jesus. But in the very next section in John 11, it goes on to say, because of this powerful miracle, the Pharisees then plotted to kill Jesus. You would think the religious leaders would be the first ones to say, whoa, he is the Messiah, he is the Lord, he is God. But no, you know what the miracle did? It drove them to plot to kill Jesus, and that's how he ended up on the cross. Sometimes we pray for God to do a miracle because we think, well, our loved one will come to Jesus God if you do that. Maybe, but it's not a guarantee and it's not what we usually see. Okay, then. These guys have experienced so much and came so close to giving their life to Jesus. Verse 6 now, it says, If they fall away to renew them again to repentance since they crucify again for themselves the Son of God and put him to an open shame. So if these who were exposed to the word experienced, you know, some of the Spirit, moving in the Spirit. They saw the power of God. They only tasted, not really eaten. They just, they didn't really drink the whole cup by putting their faith in Jesus. Do you understand now? These guys who weren't really saved, if they fall away, now the word there means abandon. That means they're rejecting. That means they're departing all the way from Jesus and His truth. Then, if you connect verse 4, it is impossible, yeah, he says, to renew them again. In other words, to, for them to come back to that place of having a repentant heart. In other words, they do not want to come back to Jesus because their heart has become hardened. I mean, didn't we recently talk about that? If you don't respond to the word, what happens? Your heart gets harder, right? You get more insensitive and you don't really, you know, it doesn't phase you anymore. Well, that's what happened to these guys. If these guys walk away and reject all those incredible things that they experienced with God, then their heart will only get so hard it's impossible for them to truly repent before the Lord. That's the idea. Bruce Barton said in his commentary, these people can never be restored because they will not want to be restored. They have chosen to harden their hearts against Christ. It is not impossible for God to forgive them. Rather, it's impossible for them to be forgiven because they won't repent of their sins. And so this kind of hard heart rejecting Jesus after experiencing, tasting God's word, to me... If you look back in some of the examples, and you look back into the New Testament, and when Jesus walked this earth, it's not no different than those who lived in Jesus' time and witnessed His work, right? They called for Jesus to be crucified, right? These guys were no different. So that's why he goes on here in verse 6, since in the rejection now, they crucify again the Son of God. In other words, they join the ranks of those who felt Jesus deserved to be crucified which is coming to full unbelief. When the writer says here, and then when the writer says, and put him to open shame, it means to declare openly that Jesus is d- guilty. In other words, they stand to agree that Jesus needs to die and go away. That's the Pharisees, right? Or think about this. It seems like it's just like those people. Think about this. Doesn't this also describe Judas to a T? I mean, he, he was one of the twelve. He went with Jesus everywhere. He was one of, one of that, that close group with Jesus. And what did he do? He betrayed Jesus to be crucified, right? That's what we see here. He never, his heart got so hard and he never repented. So the idea is, though these enjoyed their experience, the taste turns into a bitter rejection. So the writer's being serious here, saying, be warned, be warned. Let us put this together in what we saw earlier. Early in chapter 6, the writers were saying, be mature, move on from the rituals, and center out everything on Jesus. But here he warns now, yeah, the unbelieving Jews who are still in this church and who never really made a commitment, and he's even, I think, warning the believing ones. And he's saying, look, you guys don't pattern yourselves like, like, like those, like even back then. And, and what I'm describing, who got so close, but they rejected Jesus and went back to Judaism. They went back to their rituals and customs of sacrificing animals, washing their hands. So in a sense, he's saying, look, this is like the Pharisees were. This is like those who crucified Jesus, Judas and them. They rejected Jesus' word, the new covenant. They want to get rid of Jesus, got rid of Jesus and went back to the old covenant. So that's to live dangerously, right? When you don't center on Jesus, when you abide and stay in that area, you know, saying, watch out, here's the warning, right? Here's the warning to you guys who are so close. Don't do that, don't stay there. So the writer, really, and this is our point here, the writer gives this warning just tasting and drinking in all the truth can lead to a bitter rejection of Jesus Christ. Just tasting and drinking and all this truth can lead to a bitter rejection of Jesus. You know, one time um, I was sick and had a bacterial infection and years ago, and I remember got the um, antibiotics, went doctor and prescribed that. And, and then as soon as I, I felt better, I uh, stopped taking them. Well, you you know what they say? They, I was kind of reading this. They say when taking your antibiotic prescription, right? The doctor told me, but I just thought, well, I'm fine. Then I put it back in a drawer. I remember finding it like a year later. Oh, I should throw these away. But anyway, um, they say you should finish the whole course, right? It's not good to just stop in the the middle. And and I was researching this. You know why? The initial course, the initial you know time that you took the antibiotics, it killed off the weaker Uh, bacteria. And so, of course, you start to feel better. But there's most likely more resistant, stronger bugs still in your system that need more attacking. So you got to keep taking these antibiotics to get rid of them all. But stopping short short of that course of antibiotics that's designed to eradicate the bacteria could not only leave some, but it, it can make it worse. Because the remaining bacteria can also grow stronger by developing this immunity to the antibiotics. Isn't that interesting? Well, in a similar way, when a, way, when a person exposed, is exposed to the gospel of Jesus and they experience it, they taste its effects, they, they sample, they, they, they feel good you know, about themselves, they like it, but they stop there. They don't go all the way to deal with their sin and forgiveness and atonement. They just stop there, the feel-good stuff, yeah? The little experiences and stuff. And they stop right there, and if they don't complete the course and fully commit their life to Jesus, it only makes things worse. Stopping short of centering on Jesus is like tasting and not drinking, and it could lead to a bitter rejection of the Lord. Are you, are, are you in that place today? Are you caught between full commitment and walking away from God altogether? Let me tell you right now, Jesus is calling you. The writer is warning you. Jesus is saying, I love you. I want you. I don't want you to be in that place. He knows the nature of man, of every human being, and what we're like. He knows what's going to happen. The writer is laying out right here what will happen if we put off listening to the Spirit's call to respond fully in giving our heart to Jesus. I think about Revelation 22, 17, where it says, A spirit and a bride say, Come. Let anyone who hears uh, this say, Come. Let anyone who is thirsty, Come. Let anyone who desires drink freely from the water of life. Well, quickly, let's go over number three. Be fruitful. Be fruitful. Taking Jesus seriously, we see number one, be mature. Number two, be worn. And now, Lastly, in the last two verses here, our heading is Be Fruitful. Hebrews chapter 6, verse 7. For the earth which drinks in the rain that often comes upon it and bears herbs useful for those by whom it is cultivated receives blessings from God. But if it bears thorns and briars, it is rejected and near to being cursed whose end is to be burned. Okay, the writer here paints this picture now of what he's just talked about. The believing Jews who move on and drink the truth of Jesus are like, verse 7, the earth, which drinks, I like that, in the rain, and bears herbs, or in other words, it produces a crop that is useful. It's good for those who have cultivated, who planted that, which shows that God is blessing uh, that land. In other words, God is in that land. But if some in the land that received the the same rain now bears thorns and briars, it's rejected. So it is cursed or slated at the end of verse 8 to be burned in that. Usually fire and stuff speak of judgment. So the idea here is this: the same rain that fell on two types of ground. One brought fruit and the other brought thorns. And the writer's saying, you choose which is better, right? What do you think? The writer says, be fruitful, you guys. Be fruitful. Of course, we want to be the one with the blessings. We want to be where God is in that. Remember in Matthew 13, Jesus told the parable of the sower and how the seed fell on different types of ground, right? Some fell on the hard ground the wayside. Some fell on the rocky ground. Some fell on the the weeds and thorns. But some seeds fell on the good soil, right? The good ground, which produced a bountiful crop, hundredfold, twenty, forty, sixtyfold, right? Well, that's what Jesus was saying, uh, what, what believers are. He's saying, make sure the soil of your heart, make sure it's good ground. And that's what we want, right? We want to have our heart be the good ground. So our last point is this. Drink full the truth of Jesus to bring an abundance of spiritual fruit. Yeah? Be those ones who are fruitful. But be fruitful here. Drink full the truth of Jesus to bring an abundance of spiritual fruit. Robert M. Hutchins said, it is not so important to be serious as it is to be serious about important things. And we need to be serious, you guys, today about Jesus, about his word. We need to be serious about following Jesus and obeying him because that's how we drink full and find a fruitful life. The word of God is raining down on us right now. We need to drink that in. Will you be serious about your walk? Will you be serious about Jesus? Will you finally totally surrender your life, every part of you, to him? I'll close with this story. There was a man in India who attended a church and he was moved deeply by the service, the teaching of the word and all. God had really touched his heart. Well, when the ushers came by with the offering plate, the man asked them to put the plate lower. Then he asked them again, Lower. Then again, he said, lower until the plate was on the floor. Then the man stepped into the offering plate, and he said, the pastor said, I need to give Jesus my all. So here I am, all I am, every part of me, I give to Jesus. I love that. Now, to me, that's being serious and giving a life, his life to Jesus. How about you and I? Well, it's time now to take Jesus Seriously. Let's pray. Lord, there was much here and much to understand, God. And uh, I pray, Lord, that it would uh, maybe we'd get the CD or listen to it again. But, God, these truths are real and these truths are, are from you, Lord. And we want to understand them, but even more so we want to respond. And, God, we want to take you, Jesus, seriously. We don't want to play games anymore. We don't want to just, oh, just... Pick and choose what we like. But Lord, the truth of it all is we want to surrender everything. And you want us to do that. You want us because you love us. You want a full relationship with us. You want to work in our lives. You want to move. You want to change us. You want to bring us closer to you. And you want to pour your love upon us more. Your joy, your peace. You want to strengthen us and help us to get through things more and more. But it takes a full surrender to you, God. And so, Lord, here we are. God, hear our cry. Hear our hearts. As you are calling to us, as the Spirit is saying, come, Lord, we want to come and drink fully and freely the living water, Lord. Come now, Lord. Save us, change us, and transform us today. In Jesus' name, amen.